How does a system work with democratically elected leaders chosen every two years by well-trusted procedures so everyone can help fulfill the Founding Fathers' vision if people don't take part in the decision? Our big mission, make sure everyone knows that voting is essential. It's what we need to make this country reach its full potential. The biggest impact you can have is through your choice. Because you should know that your vote is your voice. But it's not easy. Voter suppression's making registration tricky. In certain states, the rules about voter ID are picky. No matter where you live or even if you voted last time, the rules and regulations can get sticky. But now we're here to help, cause we know you love our show, friends. We can help you vote, we'll tell you everything we know, friends. Let's get educated and we'll help our country grow. The election's coming up, let's go. Here we go, friends. Progress. Just visit Ham for Progress. We'll get you everything you need to know. So just you wait. Just you wait. The election of 2022. We know there's a lot at stake. Here are the steps you need to take. First things first, find out what your home state requires from you. When weallvote.org can tell you what you'll need to do. Already registered? Confirm the list still has you in it. And if you're new, then register right here. Just takes a minute. Now every state will have specific voter ID laws. Voter suppression makes it harder to support your cause. Minorities, the elderly, disabled, and the poor are most affected when the laws require something more. So votewriters.org will tell you what those laws entail. You'll also see how you can vote early or through the mail. And don't forget, down-ballot races are important, too. We'll get you all the information. You'll know what to do. Dear friends of Hamilton, there's an election coming up and each of you should be there. Dear friends of Hamilton, just visit Ham for Progress. There's all kinds of stuff to see there. Register to vote. vote. Election's on its way. Register to vote. Throw away your shot. Oh, you registered and your plans are planned. Oh, there's one more step to understand. Oh, make a pledge to vote that would be great. The future is in your hands. Just you wait. Visit hamforprogress.com to plan, pledge, and register to vote. History has its eyes on you. Well, that was cool. That was cool. I'm done with the show. They said it all. <laughs> well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. Never I'm is. so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast that's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. 
Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. I will get to that uh, that song at the top of the show there <laughs> momentarily to explain what that is all about and why we decided to play it today. Yes. But, hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. This is weird and or ironic and or it may upset Desi Doyen in several <laughs> different ways. So I just want to start here very quickly via Axios. The supply chain crisis and an extinct volcano are spurring a new beer shortage. Did you know about this, Desi Doyen? I did. You did? Yes. I didn't know. Well, you never tell me well, anything. Well, you explain it, and you'll, uh, right. you'll see why. We'll see if I got it right. Uh, but this uh, Aeronaut Brewer Brewing's co-founder, Ron Friedlander, told Axios, quote, We are certainly concerned about the supply. So that probably already has Desiree troubled enough, <laughs> a beer shortage. But here's the ironic part, I think. It's due to a carbon dioxide shortage? <laughs> yes. Given the fact that we've got too much CO2 in our atmosphere already wreaking havoc on the climate, I was stunned to read that we actually have a shortage, at least when it comes to beer production, uh, apparently. A carbon dioxide production shortage caused by natural contamination at the Jackson Dome, a Mississippi reservoir of CO2 from an extinct volcano, is forcing brewers to cut back. I knew nothing about this. <laughs> I had no idea that, uh, for that it was one, even a thing, right? An extinct volcano in Mississippi is where we get the nation's critical supply of CO2 for beer from. Is that really? Is that. Uh, yeah. Did you know this? I, I had, did not I, know about it until this uh, this story came out. But yes, I have been looking into it. <laughs> Bre- I guess you have. Brewers, uh, brewers across the country are reporting production delays in getting beer to the market and drafting contingency plans to switch to nitrogen. Night Shift Brewery outside of Boston shut down a facility after being told their carbon dioxide supply was, quote, cut for the foreseeable future, possibly more than a year. Others are paying three to four times as much. A handful of brewers are insulated from the shortage because they use innovative technology to capture natural carbon dioxide from the brewing process yeah. and store it for the future for future use. 
which frankly seems wise anyway, yes. as far as I could tell. But it requires investment, which a lot of ah. these smaller craft breweries might not have the funds to do so. Let's just get it from that uh, uh, from your extinct, local coal process. extinct volcano in, in Mississippi. And I was going to say from your local coal plant that is spewing out CO2. Plenty of CO2 coming out <laughs> of those things. Uh, Denver Beer Company in Colorado uses reclaimed CO2 and sells extra supply to a cannabis company for use in the grow houses. So I am learning all kinds of new things here today I, that I did not know uh, already yeah. on the broadcast, frankly. Uh, beer prices, by the way, Axios reports, have risen less than the broader food and beverage markets, but that could change as the rising cost of inputs, whether CO2 or grain, leads to a more expensive uh, pint. Okay, then. Yeah. There's that. Well, and, you know, and just just to be clear, there is a whole sector that is devoted to capturing CO2 from different industrial processes and then reselling it to other industries. For example, the fossil fuel industry has spent a lot of money on carbon capture, but they use it so they can then pump the CO2 down into oil reservoirs to pump out that last bit of oil. So it's not necessarily (sighs) helpful to the climate crisis, but, yeah, it's a huge... um, it's a big sector, and with the right investments, you could help people uh, reclaim and remove CO2 from the atmosphere for these processes, I... rather than continuing to release more CO2 and then trying to use other processes for, I had for uh, making n- up the difference. I had no idea any of this well, actually listen, you went know, on. Your CO2 and your Coca-Cola, for example, yeah. that's got to come from somewhere. Uh, yeah, but I didn't know it came from an extinct <laughs> volcano in Mississippi. Anyway, for more CO2-related news today, uh, an overabundance of it in our atmosphere, please do stick around for Desi Doyen's latest disastrous Green News report (laughs) a little bit later this hour. Uh, Now, as to that song that we shared at the top of of today's program, that was from the cast of Broadway's Hamilton with their lyric rewrite video called The Election of 2022. It's a new version of the musical's Uh, song The Election of 1800 uh, meant to raise awareness about the importance of voting this year. The Broadway musical has partnered with Michelle Obama's WhenWeAllVote.org on that uh, project. And I thought that might be helpful to run today because it is National Voter Registration Day, in case you haven't heard. And frankly, my guess is you haven't heard. Yeah. Uh, the song and the video reference uh, WhenWeAllVote.org, as well as VoteRiders.org, which helps voters get to the polls. In other helps words, them driving them, giving them rides to the polls. Also uh, helps them vote riders. All, correct. Also helps them get uh, the ID, uh, the uh, IDs that they may need to vote in states which try to prevent people from voting due to strict photo ID restrictions. Uh, they also reference uh, in that song there ham for progress that's actually hamforprogress.com they have links there to help you register to vote or to check your existing registration etc in an announcement this morning sent to my inbox the dnc announced that it is marking national voter registration day with a a new six-figure ad campaign directed at eligible young voters on college campuses across the country. The campaign encourages students to visit IWillVote.com 
Com. I guess I should have told people to grab a pencil before starting today's show <laughs> to write some of this down. Anyway, we'll I will have it all posted at bradblog.com. Don't worry. Oh, great. Now I got to <laughs> do more work. I will visit. I will vote.com is the DNC site to to register to vote before this uh, November's elections. The DNC beginning today says they're launching digital ads on Instagram, YouTube, targeting college students, as well as ads on digital screens in high traffic areas of college campuses. They are also running uh, digital ads on ESPN's website, on apps, on live sports streaming, Yahoo Sports, fantasy sports apps and websites, etc., on top of those digital ads, the uh, this Saturday, the uh, DNC will fly aerial banners around college football stadiums on game day, calling for people to register to vote. The DNC chair, Jamie Harrison, said the right of every eligible citizen to vote is a core tenet of our democracy. And with so much on the line this year, it's never been more important. The stakes of the midterm elections are big for young Americans, and the DNC is meeting them where they are to encourage them to register to vote and make their voices heard. The campaign will run across more than 20 college campuses in, do in a dozen states like Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, all of which just happen to have critical Senate uh, elections, I noticed, this year. Last year, the DNC announced a $25 million expansion of the I Will Vote initiative to protect the right to vote by investing in voter education and expanding the electorate through robust voter registration efforts. You can get more information and, yes, register to vote or change your registration uh, if you've recently moved since the last election, as well as check to make sure that you are still on the rolls at the address that you think you are uh, already registered at, you can do that at IWillVote.com. If you prefer a, uh, to visit a less partisan website, you can go to Vote.gov which is really easy to remember. It's a federal site. It will link to your state or your county website where you can do the same thing. Basically, register to vote or find out if you are still registered where you think you are registered. Uh, in both of those cases, by the way, IWillVote.com and Vote.gov, I was able to check my registration going to those links today without having to give those websites any actual information. I was just forwarded to my state or county voter registration sites instead. So there are others out there that will ask you for a whole, you know, your name, your address, your birth date, etc. These sites don't. Vote.gov and IWillVote.com if you just want to go and, and register and check your website, and uh, listen, your uh, registration. Yeah. And listen, anybody can help anyone in their lives get more involved in elections, like helping young people get registered. A lot of them are not familiar with some of the uh, more, shall we say, restrictive voting laws in states. So you help them understand what they need. And it really does help to have a friend or a family member reach out and sort of be their voter helper. Which is actually what I wanted to get to, which is the fact that, uh, you know, I, I suspect most folks who are smart enough to listen to the broadcast are by now probably registered, at least I hope. So what I am going to ask you to do is to help others you know this year to work with, uh, you know, these people, uh, people that you uh, meet on the street, even that you uh, are, are employed with at your job. Find out, ask them if they are registered to vote and if they are not. 
ask them to go to one of those sites. Perhaps vote.gov is best because it's not partisan in any way. But you can help people out. This is really all hands on deck as far as I'm concerned this year, folks. The midterm election day is November 8. It's now seven weeks away. Early voting is already beginning in a number of states over the next week or so around the country. And as we've been trying to report here, what happens in 2022, this year's elections, will very much affect the 2024 presidential election and democracy itself in a number of very serious ways. So while listening to this program, which obviously is the most important thing that any human being could ever do, it's not actually going to be enough this year. Neither is simply voting. I am here with enlisting you, yes, you, to become a recruiter of other folks that you know and meet to make sure that they're registered to vote, that they can get to the polls, that they have the ID, et cetera, that they need. If they don't, go to votewriters.org for information, although all of the other sites that I, uh, I have mentioned so far also have listings of what the particular ID rules are in your particular state or county. So interestingly, even though I am uh, somehow on a ton of right wing Republican email lists, I get stuff every day from these right wingers. I, I receive notices about National Voter Registration Day and uh, and, and nonpartisan groups like Vote.org. But I received nothing about it from any of the right wing lists that I am on today. So what does that tell you about who actually wants you, who actually wants you to show up and vote this year? Anyway, I hope to have some uh, more time for some election-related news in the B Block shortly. But yesterday um, on the broadcast, I asked if either the Department of Justice or the Massachusetts Attorney General, Maura Healey, would hold Florida Governor Ron DeSantis accountable for well, kidnapping charges now that it appears uh, that he participated in the use of deception to coerce some 48 Venezuelan asylum seekers in San Antonio, Texas, to fly to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts for some reason. And while both of them, the um, the uh, U.S. attorney in Massachusetts and the attorney, the state attorney general there, uh, have been called on to investigate DeSantis's apparent criminal action here. It, it might be neither the DOJ nor the Massachusetts AG who ends up bringing accountability. Shortly after we got off the air came this piece of news. A Texas county sheriff said Monday that his office has opened a criminal investigation into Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's unprecedented move to send nearly 50 migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard last week. That, according to NBC News, Bear County Sheriff Javier Salazar. Uh, Bear County, by the way, is San Antonio. That's the Texas town where Florida's Republican governor, for some reason, claims to have found immigrants to lie to and to send to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts for some reason. Anyway, the Bear County sheriff said the inquiry was still in its early stages. He declined to name possible suspects. But in a news conference, he said, quote, everybody on this call knows who those names are already. OK, Salazar said it wasn't clear whether any laws had been broken, but uh, he said that 48 migrants appeared to have been, quote, 
lured under false pretenses, which sounds a lot like the federal kidnapping statute that we uh, discussed yesterday on the program. Lured into false pretenses, into staying at a hotel for a couple of days before they were then flown to Florida and Martha's Vineyard. They were promised work, he said. They were promised the solution to several of their problems. He said a recruiter was paid, a recruiter was paid a, quote, bird dog fee to gather roughly 50 people around a San Antonio migrant resource center. The asylum seekers, most of them Venezuelan, all of them here legally, by the way, because they are seeking asylum after crossing the border and turning themselves in, requesting asylum, which is the way both U.S. and international law and treaties works. Uh, They were then taken to the posh Massachusetts island, quote, for little more than a photo op or a video op, and they were unceremoniously stranded in Martha's Vineyard, according to Sheriff Salazar. He said his office's organized crime investigators would handle this investigation. First, okay, good. Texas is looking into this? That was a shock. That was a surprise. I thought it was going to be someone up in Massachusetts. Well, San Antonio is a fairly blue county. In a Red Sea. Still, yeah, it's Texas. It is. So good news uh, that that is going on. Immigration advocates and lawyers called for a criminal investigation uh, into these efforts uh, to move the migrants using $12 million from a Florida state program that is aimed at relocating, quote, unauthorized aliens to what DeSantis's administration has described as sanctuary city, the uh, sanctuary jurisdictions. The uh, administration has previously denied breaking any laws with the program. And at a news conference on Friday, DeSantis said he would, quote, spend every penny he had on it. In the meantime, the League of United Latin American Citizens, otherwise known as LULAC, offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to the information uh, leading to the ID of the person who identified herself as Perla to the migrants. I believe we still do not know who Perla is. She apparently misled them about benefits like three months of work, free housing that would await them in Massachusetts, supposedly in Boston, though that's not where they were ultimately taken and then abandoned. Wanted posters, in the meantime, have gone up around San Antonio for this Perla character. President of LULAC said it's one of the most cruel political stunts I've seen in my lifetime. Sheriff Salazar says he's working with the lawyers representing the migrants, noting at uh, Monday's presser, quote, I believe there is some criminal activity involved here, but at present we're trying to keep an open mind. We're going to investigate to find out and to determine what laws were broken if that does turn out to be the case. So good. Because while the media appears to have sort of moved on to the, oh, what does this all mean for for the politics and uh, Ron DeSantis and his reelection chances and his uh, interest in the presidential? Exactly. And how is Donald Trump angry about it? Because DeSantis is stealing his I hate the immigrants most thunder. Uh, Well, as TPM's Josh Marshall noted over the weekend, there is definitely something else going on above and beyond the sort of just those politics. 
And also, as the uh, San Antonio sheriff seems to note, perhaps something criminal is in fact at work here that we do not yet fully understand. Over the weekend, Josh observed most of the news discussions about the DeSantis-Martha's Vineyard saga appear to have moved on to uh, you know what it all means politically. He says that's premature. The fact that DeSantis would pull a stunt like this is entirely unsurprising, if also morally obscene. But... If it was his work, why did he fly migrants from San Antonio, Texas, not from Florida? Are there really no migrants available to hoax like this in Florida? That, after all, is what the money that was allocated by the state legislature was supposed to be for, not for flying the, for flying them out of Florida, not for flying them out of Texas. I mean, the law literally says, quote, from Florida. There's been no uh, clear or real, really any explanation for why any of this would be the case, notes Josh. It also seems clear that this wasn't arranged by actual government employees. At a minimum, it was delegated to a private party who uh, quite possibly broke a few laws to do it. This woman, Perla, seems to have disappeared gave uh, one migrant a card with only her first name and a phone number, which Josh notes is not the way government employees work, at least not one who is working on the books. Something is amiss here, he said. And Josh, who has a very good news for, uh, nose for news, he cited an independent publication called the uh, San Antonio Report, which explained some early details about the charter jet company that ferried the migrants, a company named Ultimate Air, which is a luxury private jet company normally caters to corporate executives and sports teams. Why that company? Josh asks. Good question. A number of publications reported that a week ago, Florida had hired a Florida-based aviation company called Vertol Systems Company, Inc. to run its immigrant relocation program, making an initial payment of $615,000 to them. But most of these publications have assumed that that was the company that ran the flights to Martha's Vineyard, but that is not the case. Apparently, it was Ultimate Air. A totally different company. It's possible Vertol subcontracted the flights to Ultimate Air. But why would they do that, he asks. It has its own fleet of planes, and Ultimate Air doesn't usually operate those specific planes in Texas. And if it's subcontracting, why would it do so to a company with, uh, for high-end executive air travel? Basically, he writes, nothing about this story adds up. And he has been arguing as much in recent days. The details, he says, don't make sense. It looks like an off-the-books operation, possibly funded by the state of Florida, but maybe not. He says he can't explain why DeSantis would say that it's his operation if it wasn't his operation. But really, he notes, none of this adds up. And then there was this late last week from Josh. That was from late last week. And then this was from Josh last night. The national news media have seemingly lost interest in the story of the Venezuelan immigrants shipped to Martha, Martha's Vineyards. The meta story 
continues to get some attention, how it plays into the midterms and so forth, but he means what actually happened here. In the absence of any national press interest, the search for answers has been left to a few local news outlets and to LULAC, the Latino Civil Rights Organization, representing uh, some of those folks. They were able to flesh out the story about Perla and her team in San Antonio, from articles in the Cape Cod Times and the San Antonio Report, we learned that Perla was a tall blonde woman with a light complexion. Hey, Desi, you're a tall... Uh, <laughs> anyway. Hey, I've got a good alibi. Well, you do? Yes, I was on the air, man. Uh, okay, all right. Anyway, uh, she reportedly worked with two other women and two men, one of whom drove a white pickup. This is about all we know. All of these days later, they apparently housed the migrants at a hotel near the airport for several days as they tried to reach a quota. The quota was apparently 60. They wanted to find 60 people to to fly on these planes. They were disappointed that they weren't able to get enough people. They only got 48. But Josh notes, nothing about this sounds remotely like any kind of state government run or directed operation, at least not an operation that is on the books. He notes there seems to be uh, a legitimate argument that whatever happened here broke federal laws because the individuals were induced to get on these planes and travel across state lines based on false information. What should interest us more than the specific laws is that this clearly was not a state action. He said it looks more like a Project Veritas type stunt. For those people who don't know, that's that Remember that James O'Keefe Republican activist dirty tricks shop? The dude who lied about dressing up like a pimp and going into acorn offices around the country to shut down their voter registration efforts by producing fake videos, pretending it was undercover journalism. More recently, by the way, O'Keefe and his Project Veritas are in some very, very serious trouble, perhaps criminal hot water for their involvement in the theft, apparently, of the diary of Joe Biden's daughter prior to the 2016 election. 2020. Uh, 2020 election. Yes, thank you. Uh, but And I'm, we'll probably circle back to that at some point. But for now, in, in this particular potential crime... Uh, He says he's not saying Veritas was behind it. He doesn't think they are. But that kind of a group, right wing pranksters, essentially, not the sort of thing that you would imagine you would see with a government program because this was theoretically government funded. The state legislature had, you know, set aside 12 million dollars to do this sort of thing. But all of this does not look like a government uh, function. It looks like something else that we don't yet fully understand. Josh says there's a big story here, and it's no surprise that Ron DeSantis is refusing to answer specific questions about it. And then today, finally, also from Josh, he looks at some of the comments that DeSantis has been making, usually to you know right-wing outlets like Fox News and Sean Hannity, uh, comments that make it clear this was a contractor. This was not actual government officials from Florida. Why did they go to Texas 
for any of this. Were they already doing this? And this wasn't a Florida operation. It was already underway in Texas. And Ron DeSantis, for some reason, just decided to fund it. Or take credit for it. Or take credit for it. None of this makes sense. It really doesn't. I mean, a, a, a political stunt is one thing, but surely they have migrants in actually in Florida who Ron DeSantis could have tricked into going to Massachusetts. He didn't have to go to Texas to do this. None of this makes sense. And I'm glad that uh, Josh Marshall and uh, some of these other folks, these uh, local papers, are staying on this to figure out what is going on here because it kind of it kind of stinks. It stinks as something that is not legal. That is not what the uh, uh, Florida state legislature had actually intended here. DeSantis referred to um, the vendor that is doing this for Florida. The vendor? What vendor? Great. Give us the the information. I know. If it's taxpayer money, give us the name of the vendor. And are they doing it for Florida or are they doing it for someone else? Those are among the questions that hopefully the Bear County, Texas sheriff or the attorney general of Massachusetts or the U.S. Department of Justice and the uh, U.S. attorney in Massachusetts will able to be will, will be able to make some sense out of in the coming days. This was a political stunt. It was a, obviously a brilliant exercise in trolling the libs by the very ambitious Ron DeSantis. But it may end up backfiring in a spectacular way. We will see. And remember, DeSantis himself is on the ballot this November in about seven weeks, where he is running against former Republican governor Charlie Crist, who is now a Democrat. But it would take quite a bit to knock down DeSantis's uh, current polling lead in Florida. But, you know, a criminal investigation or, God forbid, an indictment, well, that might work. That might do the trick. Anyway, that's your update on that idiocy for now. Let's take a quick break. We'll hit a few of the election law news stories that I've been trying to get to this week. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We hope to help you understand things that you did not know before, things that I did not know before. I'm still reeling about that whole volcano in Mississippi and uh, CO2 thing. Anyway. Yeah, but really, it's just an opportunity to deliver some really old, awful music. (laughs) Yeah. I like that. That's old and awful. Eh, A little, but that's okay. okay. It's fun. And now you know. Now you know. Anyway, uh, the House January 6th committee... On Sunday, remember them? 
Uh, they outlined a proposal, proposed reforms to the Electoral Count Act, or ECA, to stop the former President Donald Trump or anyone else from trying to overturn an election in the future. Committee Vice Chair uh, Republican Liz Cheney and committee member Democratic uh, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren announced in a Wall Street Journal op-ed over the weekend that the panel would uh, officially unveil its proposal this week that would, quote, protect the rule of law and ensure that future efforts to attack the integrity of presidential elections cannot succeed. Well, we will see about that. On Monday, then, they officially introduced the proposed legislation. It is named the Presidential Election Reform Act. In their op-ed explaining how it would work, they laid out four, funda- quote, four fundamental principles of the committee's proposed changes to the Electoral Count Act, which, by and large, details how the Electoral College vote count is to uh, how it's to be received and certified by Congress and what to do in the event that there is a challenge to some of those votes in any particular state. For any particular reason, legitimate or otherwise, that, as you'll recall, is what Donald Trump had tried to, had hoped to exploit. It's a really old law, the Electoral Count Act, and it's kind of confusingly written. So he had hoped to take advantage of it to say, oh, yeah, it's totally legal for the vice president to come in and just throw out all the votes and name me the president. The first principle in this uh, proposed new legislation goes right to the failed scheme in 2020, a reform that solidifies that the vice president's role in counting the electoral votes from states during the joint session of Congress on January 6 is purely ministerial. It is not one that has the power to hijack the process as Trump tried to pressure Mike Pence into doing. Secondly, so it's just a ministerial function. That's it. Secondly, Cheney and Lofgren write, objections during Congress's electoral count would be limited to, quote, explicit constitutional requirements for candidates and elector eligibility. And the threshold for these challenges would be raised to one third of the lawmakers in uh, each chamber, in both the House and the Senate. Currently, according to the ECA, that number is just one. One member of each chamber in the House and the Senate is needed. That's it. And they would be able to grind the entire process to a halt. That's what they began to do. On January 6, 2021, they were interrupted only by the insurrection. Otherwise, they were going to challenge state after state after state, which would have taken hours upon hours upon hours as each state had uh, to then be debated for two hours of debate. And then they might have challenged the idea that, hey, we didn't get the job done on January 6. So all of it's illegal and we throw it to the House and let the Republicans decide. That was basically the plan. Uh, Similar bipartisan legislation has been introduced already in the U.S. Senate. 
Uh, and I think in that version, they say one fifth of the lawmakers in each chamber need to file an official challenge. So these are the details that will be worked out between the versions in the House and in the Senate. I see. So the House has a one third uh, threshold yeah. requirement. The Senate only has one fifth. I, threshold I think it's one fifth, but I can't remember if it's one fifth in each House or one fifth of the total uh-huh. uh, number of folks who are at the uh, joint session. In any event, it ain't passing yet. They're going to have to work out these uh, differences between the two uh, uh, different versions in the House and the Senate. The uh, committee's third proposal in the House addresses a situation in which a governor or another state-level official tries to withhold election results from Congress. And this is one that I'm very worried about. They would do that, for example, by not certifying results in the state at all, as several Republican nominees this year for both governor and secretary of state have suggested, have said outright that they would have done had they been in office in 2020. Even though there was no fraud, even though there was no reason to not certify the election, they just would have done it because, well, their candidate didn't win. Now, if they did that, well, that would result potentially in a constitutional crisis over how the state's electoral votes would be tallied at all, if they would be tallied, and if not, what would constitute a majority of the electoral college votes? If the governor or official uh, does so, under if they try to not certify the uh, results under this new reform plan, uh, presidential candidates, quote, should be able to sue in federal court to ensure that Congress receives the state's lawful certificate, according to Cheney and Lofgren. That change is a clear response to the election-denying nominees like Pennsylvania's gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano, who would have the power in this case, for example, if this Republican candidate wins this November, he'd have the power to block the certification of electors in Pennsylvania in the 2024 election and beyond. A critical swing state. Correct. And so this would uh, be a protection against, uh, it would help to anti-Mastriano the process, I guess. Finally, uh, the ECA needs to be reformed to, quote, make clear that state lawmakers cannot retroactively change the rules of an election after the fact in order to change the outcome. In other words, if they don't like the results of the election as decided by the voters, a state legislature may not then convene and vote to simply override the voters' choice and send a slate of electors for their preferred candidate instead, the legislature's preferred candidate instead, as Trump tried to get several states to do in uh, in 2020 and as uh, Florida's not just 2020, Florida's Republican state legislature almost did that exact same thing back in the year 2000. Had the U.S. Supreme Court at the time not jumped in and stolen the election for the Republicans instead in the state of Florida. Uh, The committee members uh, noted our proposal is intended to preserve the rule of law for all future presidential elections by ensuring that self-interested politicians cannot steal from the people the guarantee that our government derives its power from the consent of the governed. We look forward to working with our colleagues in the House and Senate towards this goal. And as I note, this comes as the uh, Senate has also has a bipartisan group of senators has uh, unveiled legislation there as well 
Congress will now have essentially less than two years to come together on an agreement on how and if to pass this law. Be nice if they did it before the end of the year. I know it won't happen before the November elections, but Liz Cheney won't be there as a Republican to vote for it after the first of the year, having lost her primary election in Wyoming. We will see if this actually gets done, if it actually gets passed. Um, And then, you know, it's especially important because the Supreme Court is about to hear more v. Harper next month. This radical, you know, if the radical activist extremists on the corrupted, stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court uh, do what many fear, um, well, what would that mean? Uh, You know, would it mean that gerrymandered state legislatures would be able to name whichever candidate that they wish to be the winner? Never mind how the voters voted. And if so, even if they do pass this law that they're talking about in both the House and Senate, would that law override, uh, you know, the the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in this case? If the U.S. Supreme Court says, nope, that's what the Constitution says. Constitution says the uh, state legislatures can do whatever they want. Uh, so that overrides the congressional law? Maybe. That, by the way, is just how ridiculous this whole Moore v. Harper case actually is. And the havoc that it could cause, depending on uh, how the Supreme Court ends up ruling. So all of that fun lies ahead for us. Uh, (laughs) And uh, as a bit more pressing concern for this year's general elections in November, as AP reported last week, Trudy LeBeau has voted in every major election since she turned 18, a half century of civic participation That has gotten increasingly difficult as her multiple sclerosis has progressed. Now, with no use of her arms or legs, the Wisconsin woman relies on her husband to help her fill out and return a ballot. But this year, thanks to the Wisconsin's, uh, Wisconsin's corrupt Supreme Court, it seemed that for the first time, the 68-year-old would have to choose between her physical health and voting. And yeah, perhaps even breaking the law. After the Wisconsin Supreme Court outlawed ballot drop boxes in July for absurd reasons, the state's top election official cited a law that said voters had to place their own absentee ballots either in the mail or return them in person to a county clerk, to a town clerk. Okay, so what do you do if your disabilities do not allow you to place the ballot into a mailbox yourself or to show up in person at the clerk's office? LeBeau said, I certainly don't want to send my husband to jail because he put my ballot in a mailbox. I'd have to find some way of putting my ballot in in my teeth and then carrying it to the clerk's office. Seriously, this is what is going on in Wisconsin. Fortunately for LeBeau, she and other Wisconsin voters with disabilities can, in fact, get the help that they now need to return their ballots this November, thanks to a federal judge who recently ruled that the Voting Rights Act allows for voter assistance that trumps any state 
law like the one that was in place in Wisconsin. That is good, very good, but in other states, battles continue over ballot assistance and other voting laws that harm voters with disabilities, AP notes. Challenges have arisen in the past two years to laws and practices in at least eight different states that make it difficult or even impossible for people with certain disabilities to vote. A federal judge in June struck down voter assistance restrictions in sweeping changes to election laws passed by Texas Republicans. Good, they struck those down at least. That was last year, and they had in part limited the help that voters with disabilities or limited English proficiency could get. Under the law, a voter could only receive assistance reading or marking a ballot, not returning one. So again, if you have no use of your arms or legs... Oh, well, too bad. Sorry. In North Carolina, uh, in July, a federal judge blocked state laws that limited people with disabilities to receive ballot assistance from only close relatives or legal guardians. Restrictions on ballot assistance still stand, however, in several other states, including Kansas, Iowa, Kentucky and Missouri all of which is absolutely absurd and obscene and obscene. But of course, that is the purpose. The Republicans do not care. They're pretending that all of this is meant to prevent fraud, despite the fact that in all of these cases, in all of these states, they have been unable to find any noteworthy fraud that was caused in this way. Martha Chambers was paralyzed in a horseback riding accident 27 years ago. She uses her mouth to hold pens, paintbrushes, and mouth sticks, which allow her to use a computer. Chambers also relies on a power wheelchair to get around because she can't use her arms. She's unable to return her own ballot to a mailbox or a polling location. A caregiver returned her ballot for her in Wisconsin's August primary, and Chambers said that she joined the lawsuit in this case, so that it wouldn't be illegal in future elections for caregivers to give such help. She said, why do we even have to go through all of this to begin with? Our lives are difficult enough with the challenges that we face on a daily basis. Well, why, Martha? Because Republicans care about staying in power more than they care about people like you or by the way, about democracy itself. That's why you have to go through that. And that's why voters need to turn out in record numbers this November and, yes, vote for Democrats, whether you like them or not, in my opinion, because democracy itself is, as Joe Biden has correctly said, very much on the ballot this year. Quick break, and we're back with... Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks.
Okay, Desi Doyen, it's your turn to drive. <laughs> I am, I tell you, that uh, stories like that last one just, I don't know if you could tell, but they just infuriate me. Yeah. Just, you know, cutting off the right to vote to people, to anyone, much less people who are disabled like that. I don't know. Like I said, it's obscene. <sighs> obscene and infuriating. Speaking of obscene and infuriating, <laughs> let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. We're reaping what we've sown. We're now experiencing devastating climate impacts. Three simultaneous major storms underscore climate crisis impacts. Climate change juiced Pakistan's catastrophic flooding, study finds. Plus, this is my ancestors' land, and I feel like I shouldn't have to leave. Court blocks massive proposed plastics plant in Louisiana. All those blockages and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Yeah, you know, uh, the worst thing that can happen to you as a climate scientist is that your predictions come true. Yeah, you know, that's also the worst thing that can happen to you as a political news person on the radio. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I know the Queen of England died a couple of weeks ago, so that's kept the news media busy. But as it turns out, there were three huge storms over one single weekend. And a lot more than that over this past summer. As we go to air, it's Climate Week in New York City, the annual Climate Solutions Conference coinciding with the United Nations General Assembly. Both events arrive after a summer of extreme weather disasters around the world. Pakistan is still reeling from one of the worst climate disasters in history. The World Health Organization warns of a second disaster. Waterborne and mosquito-borne diseases are surging after unprecedented rains inundated a third of the nation, killing more than 1,500 people, and there is not enough medicine to treat millions of displaced people living in crowded camps. This week, climate experts at the World Weather Attribution Initiative reported that climate change supercharged the intense of Pakistan's record rainfall by as much as 50 percent. And the month-long extreme heat wave that preceded the rain was made 30 times more likely. This past weekend, three powerful storms hit simultaneously around the world, underscoring the rising costs of inaction on climate change. Hurricane Fiona ripped across Puerto Rico as a Category 1 storm, causing a territory-wide blackout on its fragile electric grid. Some areas received as much as 30 inches of rain, triggering astonishing flooding. As we go to air, one death has been confirmed, thousands rescued from the floods. President Biden has issued a state of emergency to free up federal disaster funds. I hope he's ready to throw them some paper towels. And FEMA says it learned from Monster Hurricane Maria, which devastated the island five years ago this week. This time, FEMA pre-staged emergency personnel and supplies. Also on Sunday, Typhoon Nanmadol slammed Japan, unleashing torrential flooding in mountain areas. More than 9 million people were told to evacuate. The storm is expected to cause billions in damages. In Alaska, the zombie remnants of Typhoon Murbach hit western Alaska as the most intense storm in 50 years, causing dangerous storm surge flooding over more than 1,000 miles of Alaska's low-lying coastline, destroying bridges, roads, and coastal defenses. All within 
two or three days. Yes. And on Democracy Now!, climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann summed up the onslaught of extreme weather this summer from historic heat waves in China, Europe, and the U.S. to Pakistan's biblical floods and this weekend's crushing storms. We are witnessing the devastating consequences of climate change now. This isn't 10 years into the future. It's not way off in the Arctic. It's where we live now. We are experiencing devastating consequences of past climate inaction. And it really drives home the importance of taking action now. Yeah. And wait until it gets really bad. But some good news. Good. In Australia, the parliament has passed its first major climate legislation in more than 10 years, with a first-ever mandate to cut Australia's carbon emissions 43 percent by 2030, which would bring one of the world's top coal exporters in line with Western allies like the U.S. and the U.K. Nice. Also, South Australia, where they famously installed one of the world's first utility-scale battery farms on a bet from Tesla CEO Elon Musk. Right. Uh, South Australia is now set to become the first major regional grid to run on 100% renewables. Very cool. I remember when they used to get blackouts all the time until Elon Musk and his batteries came along. Yep. And finally... This is my home. This is my ancestors' land. And I feel like I shouldn't have to leave my home to let an industry come in here and destroy what was built up for us from generations. A state district court in Louisiana has revoked air permits for a massive proposed $9 billion petrochemical plastics complex in the majority black district of St. James Parish, a region known as Cancer Alley because of high cancer rates among residents living near a large number of polluting industries. Formosa Plastics Corporation says it will appeal, but the ruling is a major victory for local environmental justice groups. Nice. Good news indeed. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we didn't have time for, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you very much, Desiree. Yes. Good to finish on a on an up note yes. today. For so I could use it. Uh, thank you very much. Desi is, of course, our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by you kind folks who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Greatly appreciated. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Please follow me there. I will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Say, take me to your heart again. Give me one more start. I'm like a child. I'm running wild.